And David begins that psalm by drawing our attention to the creator and what he's created and how creation speaks to us about God. And then he moves on to God's covenants and God's commandments, so God's agreement with his people and his commandments and how those speak to us. That's where we'll be mainly spending our time uh, this morning. But there's a problem we need to address. So you're going to get a a little bit of a sermon inside a sermon this morning. Because this is Old Covenant or Old Testament. And we live in New Covenant or New Testament times. And so David's talking about God's covenants and his commandments and how good they are. And we have to address how we treat these because we are not under that Old Covenant. At the time of writing that David was writing, he's under covenant, and certain commands are at play um, in his, uh, not only his role as king, but just in his relationship with God and, and Israel as a nation. So we've got to look at that a little bit because we are not under the law, and we'll get to what that means in a moment. We are under grace. So how do we go about properly reading this, understanding it, and looking at the old covenant or Old Testament and the commands that are formed there? Um, God has made several covenants with people. If you look at the Old Testament, uh, Adam, Noah, uh, Abraham, Moses, and David, those are all covenants he made with those uh, particular individuals, and sometimes it was a covenant with the individual that impacted the nation, and sometimes it was a covenant with the nation through the individual. And all of them are important, and we need to know how to treat them. So what is a covenant? A covenant is not a contract. So if we have a contract with someone, it says, I will do this and you will do this. And if either party break their part, you've broken this contract and things go sideways. You know that if you've had work done in your home by someone who said, I will do this for this much money, and then they don't do that or you don't pay, you've got a problem, right? A covenant is not like a contract, although we may think about it like that. A covenant is a relational agreement. It's an agreement with vows, uh, written down things, things you speak verbally, how we're going to relate. It's a relational agreement. The only really modern day thing we have that uh, you know, is, a, is a shadow or a type or, or lends itself to our understanding of what Old Testament covenant and what New Covenant is, is marriage. Marriage is not a contractual agreement, despite a lot of people saying, well, it's just a piece of paper. It's not a big deal. I don't really care about this thing. You speak vows in front of other people. God and witnesses, most services say something like that, and you are making a covenant together. You're saying, this is my part in the relationship, and this is your part in the relationship. And if you break your vows, you break your covenant. Now, the, the, the amazing part about covenant with God is that though his people broke their vows, they, they turned their back on God, they disobeyed his commandment, he stayed faithful to them, much like in a marriage, even if a spouse is unfaithful, the violated spouse can choose to forgive. Trust can re- be restored over a period of time. It's not instant. There's process. It's a big thing I'm not going to get into but there is opportunity to stay and remain in covenant together or you can walk away. And God says, if you don't keep my commands, I can turn my back and walk away. But again and again, he says, and we've learned the past few weeks, he is faithful and just and true. And what he did is he took Israel and Judah. So 
Israel and Judah eventually, the nation of Israel divided into two kingdoms, a northern and a southern, and he put them into captivity. He disciplined them time and time again throughout covenant language, old and new. He says, I discipline those I love to bring them back to me. And so he turns his back on them for a time, allows them to experience the results of their sin. And they're carried off into captivity where they cry out. And then they're brought back into promised land and in direct relationship with God. And so God has these covenants. And within covenants, these relational agreements, here's an agreement of what I'm going to do for you and what you are going to do to remain in right relationship with me. It's always, the language is always, I will be your God and you will be my people. And from the moment God created uh, humankind, he wanted to be in relationship with us. It says he walked physically in the garden when heavens and earth were connected and together and sin broke it all. We're separated from God. And it's God's desire that we would be connected, united together with him. And so he makes relational agreements. And the crazy thing about it all is as much as we might read the language that if we keep our part, we stay in right relationship with God and God will keep his, his part, it's all on God. It always has been. He, he's done all the work all the way along. <laughs> and his asking his people to keep his commands are actually for our blessing and our benefit. It brings him glory and it makes us uh, in, in the... Uh, availability we can experience, we're in the kind of lifestyle, we're in the mindset where we can receive his blessings and not reject him. But within each of these, we have vows or we have commandments, and those are known as law or God's law. Here's a definition. God's law refers to the system of rules that reflect God's character. They're built into the created order and are revealed in Scripture. So if that's a covenant, there's a relational agreement, and within that there's these vows and there's these things we do, there's commandments, and there's several of them in the Old Testament, some blanket ones, and uh, each one added and, and added some important aspects. And then Jesus comes and brings a new covenant. What do we do with the old covenant? Well, what, why don't we just consider Jesus' perspective because he actually told us how we treat old covenant, Old Testament. Matthew 5, 17 and 18 says this, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. So when you hear uh, the law of Moses or the prophets or the law and the prophets, that's speaking of the commandments in the Old Testament and the prophetic writings, but really it was, um, they're referring to all of Scripture. So they don't say the law and the history and the poetry and the prophets and the narrative and the stories and all these different genres within the Old Testament. It's, it's just a term for all of it. It covers all of it. So he said, I didn't come to abolish all that came before me. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. That's really, really important. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. Not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So we're going to zoom way out. So God creates heaven and earth. He wants to dwell with us, connected, united with humanity, and that relationship is broken. And Jesus is saying, not a single one of God's purposes through his covenant, which is always meant to point us to God, not how to keep commandments so that we'll be acceptable to God, even though people misunderstand. We think religion and commandments and all these things, if we just do this, we'll be acceptable to God. It never worked that way, never could. That's the point, as we'll discover. 
But throughout time, there will be a time, Jesus says, when all that was lost here will be restored and then some through me. He will come and he will bring resurrection life. He will remake the heavens and the earth. There will be union again between God and his people. And until that time comes, not a single one of the purposes that God had through old covenants will disappear until it's brought to fruition. All God's purposes he's going to make happen in Christ Jesus. So in coming and instituting a new covenant or testament, Jesus fulfilled or accomplished the old covenants in a way we couldn't, humanity, we, Israel couldn't through their obedience, even their hardcore best practice obedience, even in the best parts of their history as a nation, they couldn't do it. They just couldn't do it. And Jesus came to fulfill that. The book of Hebrews goes on to explain that. Really, if you can summarize Hebrews, it is a book written, it's a letter written to Jewish Christians in a day and age where Christianity was new. And the first believers were Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. He was a king uh, in the kingly line of David. And it was through those people that God's grand plan came. And they had to figure out, so this new Jesus thing, this Christianity, do we got to become Jewish first? Because Gentiles started to believe. And there was a council in Jerusalem. You can read that in Acts 7. And they're just figuring out what to do. And so there's this letter written to Hebrew or Jewish or Israelite Christians so that they can understand how to treat their old life, their old temple sacrifices, all the Old Testament covenants with its practices. And in Hebrews 8, starting at verse 6, we read this. But now, under new covenant... Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the Old Testament. So there's your summary of Hebrews. Jesus is sufficient. Everything else is insufficient. Jesus is greater. Everything else is temporary and partial. Jesus is, he just far supersedes all of that stuff. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on far better promises. So Jesus is in the priestly order. He becomes a better high priest. Part of the priestly role in the Old Testament was to mediate between God, God, and his people. And so a high priest would go once a year into the Holy of Holies where God's presence was and through sacrifice and all the things God had commanded, there would, sin would be covered. It'd be atoned for temporarily. And their faith would be credited to them as righteousness by God later on in Hebrews, it says. So it wasn't the sacrifice and all those things. That was part of obedience. But they needed a priest to go between the people and, and God. And our priest is better. We, don't, we are a kingdom of priests now because Jesus, he's better. He's far superior. We don't need that sacrificial system anymore because Jesus is a better sacrifice. Jesus is a better priest. We have a better temple. We are the temple because the Holy Spirit dwells in us and uh, New Testament says we are all like living stones who make a new temple. It's better. And there's better promises, and it's a better covenant. Hebrews goes on, verse 7. If the first covenant had been faultless, so if there weren't faults there, not because God made a bad covenant. Boy, God messed up, so now he's going to make a covenant with Moses and David. No, no, no. It was a revelation. Here's why there were multiple covenants. If the first covenant had not been, had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But God found fault with the people. We messed up the covenant, and so he kept giving new and better ways to relate to him. 
the exact same stuff, just new ways. And then the author of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah 31. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. So the northern and the southern kingdom, all of Israel, I'm going to make a new covenant. It's coming. Hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years after Jeremiah was written, it's coming. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand. Remember, God did all the work. I took them by the hand, led them out of the land of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back on them. They went into captivity, and then we were brought back until they were ready to be in covenant. Right relationship again, says the Lord. Verse 10, but this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws, doesn't say God's rid of all the commands and laws and all these things. I will put them in their minds. So Romans says we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. Jesus remakes the way we think so he writes this law on our minds, and I will write them on our hearts, our feelings, and our attitudes, and our intentions. Um, and I will be their God, and I will be, they will be my people. Covenant language again. In other words, all this stuff on tablets and papyrus and shared by priests and prophets and Pharisees and scribes and all the hundreds and hundreds of rules in Jesus' day that the Pharisees and religious leaders had put in place to keep the hundreds and hundreds of rules in Scripture so that they would stay in covenant with God. God writes them on our heart. How does he do that? Does the moment you believe, all of a sudden, it's downloaded in you and you can just kind of run through your mind? How many people, you got it all there, it's all good? No. It's the Holy Spirit. The author of the covenants, the keeper of the covenants, the author of the commands and the laws and the decrees, he's in us. That's why it's written there. He convicts us, he grows us, he empowers us to fulfill our part, to live in the blessing of covenant in ways that the Old Testament just couldn't. So the new covenant with Israel and Judah, um, who, who rejected Jesus, uh, in Romans 11, it says that Gentiles then are grafted in to the Jewish nation and become true Israel. So God's not done with Israel. He's just done with Israel the way they knew it. Those who believe in Jesus are true Israel. And we have been those of us who are not Jews by birth, which didn't matter anyway, because if you look at the Old Testament, it's not about being born in Israel. It's about being a true Israelite who follows God. And many Gentiles and and non-Jewish people became part of Israel in the Old Testament. We just missed it all. And most Jewish people did too. The Israelites missed it. But we've been grafted in. So Gentiles, non-Jewish people, we have all the blessings of all the covenants, and they are in Christ Jesus. Jesus does it for us. And he writes the law and the commandments and everything fulfilled or, or all the promises God intended, his purposes throughout the Old Testament, fulfilled in Jesus, and now dwelling in us, because it's a better way. So Jesus didn't abolish it. No, look at this, verse 11. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. What this is talking about is that because we have the Lord inside, his spirit, that as believers aren't just dwelling in a promised land, but we inhabit the whole earth. And as the gospel spreads, as other people get to know us and see Jesus in us, they will know God through us. It's a better way. It's not just through one nation and through temple sacrifice. And if you 
you know, get circumcised and learn to sacrifice and do all these things, then you can follow God. It's a way better way. It's a better way. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never, ever again remember their sin. It's a better way. It's a better covenant. This new uh, covenant isn't evidenced by temples and sacrifice and priests and lands and kings and a nation. doesn't matter what you call them, Israel or whatever it is. It's a better way. It's for all people, all time. It's finished. Jesus declared it finished, and we can walk in a better way. It's what God intended all along. And, and now we're looking forward to Jesus' return when he will make all things new, and he will complete the work already started. So we live in a now and not yet kingdom. So we live in a new covenant that's come, and it's complete but not yet finished because Jesus has to come and finish the work. But he started this. And finally, verse 13. When God speaks of a new, and it's in quotes, a new covenant, it means he has made the first one what? Let's say it again. He made the first one. So, so he made the first one obsolete and now out of date and will soon disappear. Does it mean it doesn't exist? We don't look at it? Because there's extremes in how we handle Old Covenant and Old Testament. There are people who on this extreme say, man, we are not under the Jewish covenant and laws. We're done with that. We've moved on to grace it has no place in our lives. Disregard it, just forget it, rip it out of your Bible, move on from the Jewish scriptures. There are those on this side who say, man, let's get the Ten Commandments back up in the schools. That'll save us, that'll fix us. Well, it didn't fix us before, and it didn't fix Old Covenant. Ten Commandments didn't save the people. You know why? Because commandments can't save you. They point to a God who can. So what do we do between these two extremes? How many of you uh, have... Uh, flown in the past year? How many, okay. How many are flying upcoming? Some of you maybe have an upcoming trip? Okay. Here's your choice, all right? A or B? I want you to raise your hands. A, you're going to use the original airplane that the Wright brothers made, okay? Stick with me. Or you're going to use the plane that they have scheduled you for, for you to go on. Who wants to use the original? No one, Okay. Who wants to use the new one? Okay, so what do we do with the original one? Has it been wiped from the history books? We don't look at it. It's got different laws of aerodynamics. No, no, no. All the things present in that airplane, the laws of aerodynamics, the wings, the parts, we've just learned and we have something better. It's made this one obsolete but not gone. In fact, we honor it more, right? We have history books and we learn from it and we put it in the Smithsonian and stuff like that. Because it's important and it has a place, the Old Covenant and the Old Testament have a place. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans quite a bit. Though we are not under law, Old Covenant, and we are under grace, New Covenant, the law has a foundational purpose in our lives still. Romans 8 is probably the, the key chapter to understanding this in all the New Testament. I encourage you to to read it. In fact, I've got in my queue of books to, to read uh, a book on Romans 8 by N.T. Wright. He just released it this year. It's a whole book on just that one chapter because it's so important to understand this and the gospel and the story of all of God's, you know, grand story. But the law couldn't save us, Paul says, because of the weakness of our sinful nature and because all it could do was point out sin. It's powerless. 
you, you, get, you get a list of rules, and if you keep them, that's good, but we have sinful natures, and we struggle, and we can't keep them on our own. Not even with the best sacrifice, best priest, best king, best land, and with all God's promises, we failed. And I say we, putting us as people grafted into Israel, looking at our history all throughout the old covenants. So with that as a backdrop, with God and his covenants, now we get into Psalm 19 because David's talking about laws and commandments and how do we treat these. We read them backwards. We look at them through the eyes of what Jesus had done. So he has fulfilled them. They're obsolete, but they're important. In fact, what Jesus said, he was asked prior to his death and resurrection, what about the law, Jesus? What are the greatest commandments? They're trying to trap him. He says, oh, that's an easy one. There's two of them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets, there's that term again, hang on these two. In other words, Jesus says, look, we have really made this whole thing complicated. If you do these two things, you'll keep all the rest. And then he says to his disciples, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. Boom, at the top. You follow that and you'll follow the other two and you'll follow all the rest. Because we don't follow all the rest in order to prove our worth to God. Because if we do that, we're all doomed and we absolutely are doomed apart from Jesus. We cannot save ourselves. We can't make things better on the earth. We are powerless. But God is not. Jesus is all sufficient. The old covenant is insufficient. Jesus is better. Old covenant, it's just obsolete. Jesus fulfilled it. Over the Christmas break, um, I saw a social media uh, post, a video on social media from a local news, um, uh, news station. And it was an interview of this guy in front of this two-story red brick building. And uh, the foundation had begun to crumble. And he said, you know, yesterday we all heard this loud sound and there was cracking. You could hear the glass being stressed and breaking. And then they showed picture after picture of the side of this building. And apparently there was a new landlord there and they were trying to do some repairs, and they made the foundation unstable, and this whole thing, everyone had to evacuate, and they couldn't get back in to get their stuff, because the whole thing was unstable, and it was starting to collapse. And I thought to myself, that, that looks a little familiar. So I took it upstairs. Wesley, our son, was home from college for Christmas break, and I said, hey, does this look familiar? He's like, oh yeah, of course that looks familiar, and of course it was. It is two houses down from where he rents for college. So we knew that very well. And when I took him back from Christmas break, I actually missed his road because I watched for that red brick two-story building to turn onto a street, and it was gone. Gone. They took it down in a, in, a, in a matter of weeks. Foundations, it turns out, are actually kind of important. And if the old covenant and God's commands are foundational to what Jesus did, and he fulfilled them, he didn't nullify them or get rid of them, he didn't abolish them, he just, they're just obsolete. They don't work the same way, but he fulfills them, then we need to pay attention in that way. Now, there are three kinds of laws in the Old Testament. There is ceremonial law, and that has to do with the sacrifices in the temple, 
We know absolute, we know that's obsolete. That we, we don't even follow those. Although we look to the principles of what God was trying to do through those because they point to Jesus. They point to the cross. They point to how God saves us. It's the same. It's his same story. He doesn't have plan A and B. He's unfolding this over time. But the ceremonial laws for you to go home this afternoon and find for yourself a lamb without spot or blemish or, or maybe two doves when you had a child and you bring them to the church here, I promise I will not sacrifice them. And it's just insufficient. You don't need those things. That was part there. So we know that, ceremonial law. There's also civil law. And so what Israel had uh, throughout the Old Testament as they wandered through the desert and then founded, you know, planted in the promised land, in that human history era was they had different kinds of housing, different kinds of health needs, different kinds of local stuff they needed to pay attention to. And God cared about that. They didn't have a the government. They didn't move into a you know, fully uh, formed society with all these laws and things. So those civil laws talked about things like mold in your house and health things. And man, I'm glad I'm not a priest because he was like a doctor and he was like a st- structure professional and he could come in and all this kind of stuff. But God made sure that his people knew how to live in the land that they lived. And so there are civil laws. And then there are moral laws. And that's pretty much what we look to when we think of commandments. When we think of commandments. So when we think of law, Jesus, you know, it's, we, we still keep the moral or the, the moral commandments. But we just, they just have a different place in our life. And in Psalm 19, beginning at verse 7, says this. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for the living. The law to the Israelites was more than just this thing I do to stay right with God. They pointed to God already. They had it baked in. People who misunderstood that uh, really got off on the, on the wrong thing. And, and, and they, they just, they, they have this love of the law because it's from God and it points to God. And, and in these two verses and the one to come, uh, David uses some synonyms of the word law. He uses the, the word we would translate instruction. And the Hebrew term for that talks about direction or instructions or teaching. So it's kind of one facet of a kind of a law. And then he, uh, uh, in English, we uh, translate the Hebrew word that David used to decrees. And that would be like testimony or, or witness about something. So it's still a little bit different kind of a law. And then he talks about commandments, which are procedures or specific instructions on how to do something. And then the Hebrew word that we trans, translate command is a little bit different because that has more to do with giving a direct order, a, a direct order or a commission. And then finally, the blanket term that we translate law, the Hebrew term, simply means de- decisions or determinations or broad judgments over a thing. And so David is using these terms so that we understand, man, all of the ways that God gives us vows or agreements or commandments as part of our covenant agreement to be in relationship, right relationship with God. They're multifaceted. He wants to make sure that as he's writing this poetry, those who read it or sing it know he means it all, like the whole thing. It's all good. So as amazing as that is to consider that David is writing all the different kinds, even better are the results. Because he, he gives this, this holistic approach to the kinds of commands, but he also gives this holistic approach to the results of keeping these commands. And he wants us to know that, 
there's, there's a deeper blessing here that you might miss. Now, when I talk about laws, commands, instructions, the first thing we tend to think about and what most people think about church is restrictions, right? You can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. It's going to keep you from all these good things. And in fact, that is the original temptation of the serpent in the garden. The serpent come up and said, hey, did God really said you'd die if you eat this thing? Like, you want knowledge and wisdom and life, right? You don't have to go through God to get that. You just go about it your own way. Eat this fruit and you'll have all the things you want. You don't even worry about that guy and the restrictions he's giving you. He doesn't want good things for you. He wants to stay up here and you down here and he doesn't love you. And of course, they bend to that and ruin everything. And that is the ultimate definition of sin, going after a good thing in the wrong way. And so we may think law, command, decree, These are all restrictions. It's God keeping us from all this good stuff. But in fact, it is not. It's him helping us get the good stuff in the good way that is a blessing for us and brings glory to him. The other interesting thing that uh, Paul says in Romans 8 about the law is that not only does it tell us what to avoid or what to do and and, shows us our sin without the power to break it, it also entices sin. Imagine this for a minute, okay? There's, there's a, a young child, let's say she's about a five-year-old girl at home, and it's an hour away from supper. And her dad says, hey, I'm going to go finish some laundry, do a bit of tidying up, in an hour we're going to eat. I don't want you to eat the cookies from the cookie jar. See you in an hour. What's the girl thinking? Well, I know what she's thinking. She's going, I didn't even know there were cookies. <laughs> right? Nor did I know where to find them. Thanks, Dad. That's great. And so for that hour, all she can think about is cookies and the cookie jar on the counter because the sin has been revealed to her. So there is a difference in our sin nature and our propensity before following Jesus. We are drawn towards sinful things. And God remakes us, gives us a new nature that is drawn to him. And depending on your nature and who you follow, that's what commands will do. They will either show you the way to avoid and point to God, or they will entice you to walk away from him. But what's the results if you are in Christ? What's the results for David, who is a man after God's own heart and wants to follow these commands so he can reap the blessing? Well, he says, they, you'll see them on the screen, they revive the soul, they make the simple wise, they bring joy to the heart, and they give insight for living. Those are pretty good things, I would say, Now, before you think, well, you know, just dismiss that and move on, let's break these down a little bit because these are things that people still seek. We still have that in our society. We're still all looking for those things, whether people are churched, follow Jesus or not. Think about this. People want to have their soul revived or renewed at a deeper level. How do they seek this? Often Eastern meditation, yoga, mindfulness, these types of things because they they know there's something deep inside that's broken and needs to be renewed and revived. Well, that's not the way. That's not a lasting way. Jesus has a better way. What about about this whole um, learning and self-improvement thing? Of course, people go after uh, making wise the simple, right? We want to be made wise. We don't want to live in simple ways. We want to do better. So there's a huge industry, especially in the business world, to become a better leader, a better manager, a better person, more you know, emotionally in tune and emotionally intelligent, and all this stuff. And what studies are often finding now is for the past 50 years, for all of our teaching, 
your workplace is probably still as messed up, right? People still want to be made wise in their simplicity, but simply self-improvement doesn't seem to, I mean, there is some fruit there, but it doesn't seem to be doing the trick. What about bringing joy to the heart? Of course, people have hobbies and sports and parties and all these things, good things in life that God wants us to enjoy, but when we do it in our own way or we only seek that, there's an end to it. There's dissatisfaction. What about insight for living? People absolutely want insight for living. They want to be told, what do I do in this situation? So they go to psychics and mediums. And if they're not spiritual, they'll go to a life coach and say, help me figure this out. We want insight for living. And David is saying thousands of years ago, God's the answer. And his commandments and his decrees in this covenant, these things that point to your relationship with him, as you walk with him in these ways, this is what will happen. This is what will happen. Because they are more desirable than gold, even the finest golds. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. They are a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. So you may be thinking, gold's not a big thing to me. I don't really care about honey. But to David, that was his jam. Like He was like, I like gold, I like honey. There's nothing better than those, but God's better. So insert your own thing. Whatever thing you really like, God is better. Keeping his commands are better than that thing you desire. Maybe it's the thing you have or a thing you want. God will take you in a better direction. They are a warning, David says. They warn me. They warn me from great calamity, great failure, and they are a great reward for those who obey you. And then he ends. He ends in the final verses. These are some of my favorite verses in all the Old Testament. And these verses we can just lift right out and apply under new covenant because they are still very much applicable. Verse 12, how can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? It's rhetorical, right? (laughs) He knows how. Cleanse me from these hidden faults. We need that. Do you know all the things lurking in your heart? James says, we sin because there's desires that come from our flesh, which is our old nature. Who we, we don't have the old nature anymore, but we have old patterns of behavior and the power of sin in the world around us and temptation from Satan in the world. And there's things that build up desires apart from God as God is rebuilding our desires and our very nature based on his power and his spirit. We have these things that we're used to and they give birth to sin. And when we act on that sin, eventually it leads to death metaphorically and physically. How can I know all these sins lurking in my heart, the things I'm not even aware of, and all of a sudden, I'm tempted with something, and it's like I feel like I'm powerless against it. I didn't even know it was there. How can I know that? Then he says, verse 13, keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I'll be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. David's saying, man, in my heart, and my mind, and my hands, right? The things I do, the words I say, the things I think, the things I feel, help me be profoundly holy as you are, God, because when I am, life is way better. And under new covenant, we don't just have a list of rules and being cleansed with, uh, the, the, the Hebrew for this says, with hyssop branches and ceremony and all these things that God gave as a temporary way to be purified under Christ, we are set free from sin and set free to be holy and to have all these blessings. 
And then my favorite part of this whole psalm is something you should pray regularly. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O God, what? My rock and my redeemer. Even in Old Testament speak, he's speaking new covenant language. Redeemer. Redeem doesn't mean you turn in a coupon for like a bit of a discount. It means God, Romans 8, I'm working all things together for the good of those who follow me. It doesn't mean everything that happens to you is good. It means that redemption means that God took the death of Jesus, meant for harm, meant to be the final blow to God's kingdom, and it became the greatest victory. And he takes the things in your life which are meant to ruin and harm you, these things lurking in your heart, the things you've done and are about to do, and he can take those and turn them around in his grace and his mercy and his power and make them great. He is the redeemer and he is our rock. He's the foundation upon which we stand. The foundation he laid for us is the old covenants and commandments that if we follow Jesus, we keep all that too in a way that we couldn't as a humanity under that covenant, those covenants. It's way, way better. And so we in New Testament times, in New Covenant times, look forward to the day when Jesus comes and completes his now and not yet kingdom. We're in victory, but there's more to come. It's way better. And so we can pray this and we can say this. So the the, the bottom line of all this is this. Follow God's good instructions. Follow God's good instructions. Read these things back in the Old Testament through Jesus because there's life there. Don't see them as if I do these things and I'll get to God. Doesn't work, never has, never will. But man, the Proverbs and the prophets and the the covenant commandments give life. Follow God's good instructions for God and his ways and his plans for you are good. What the Israelites knew and what David knew is that they loved following these commands. Why? Because they're good. They'll lead to good things. But they're made by God. Every one of the commands, commandments, decrees, instructions, laws point back to a creator, a lawgiver, a, a God of love who is just and pure and right and true and fair, and so are his laws, commands, decrees for our good. And one day Jesus will come and reign in victory forever. New heavens, new earth, with his people, way better than any promised land, any temple, any priest, any system. That's why Jesus was always angry at the Pharisees. He's like, you think that in your laws you're finding the way of life. Here I am, and you reject me. And they said, nah. <laughs> Get on the cross. We got a better way. But Jesus rose in victory. So do we throw the Old Testament away? Not at all. We view it through the eyes of grace, new covenant, through Jesus. We respect it. We realize that Jesus fulfills all those things. We learn to read it to see the things that are no longer civil, you know, ceremonial law. We don't need to do those things, but we take the principles of God's moral law that Jesus fulfilled in us, and we reap the benefits of that. Consider this. I'll just close with this example. The way that, you know, love one another as I have loved you plays out in fulfilling it. Let's just take the Ten Commandments for a moment. Ten Commandments are not abolished, but they're obsolete, but they're still good. 
they're still good. If you love God, your Father, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you fulfill the first four, right? Because you will be having no other gods, you'll have no idols, you will not profane his name, and you'll keep the Sabbath because you want to rest with him. If you just do that. And if you love one another the way Jesus has loved us, you keep all the rest because you're going to want to honor your parents because you're loving someone else the way Jesus loved you. Uh, you're not going to murder. You're not going to commit adultery. You're not going to steal, lie, or desire other people's spouses, stuff, or life. Because Jesus is working that in you in a way that tablets, papyrus, a paper, or apt Bible never can. Because the law is written on our hearts. It's way better. And so if David saw these as good in an old covenant, how much better should we just love it and consume it and read God's word as much as we can, not separated from God, not as a way to get to God, but as part of our relationship with him as his spirit speaks in us when we read every word. It's such a better way. And if you are not a follower of Jesus and you've never decided to believe in him, you've never accepted his offer of salvation, you've never confessed your sin, you've never repented of sin and, and begun to follow him, I encourage you in your heart to do that today. You simply need to uh, admit your need, your insufficiency in all your good stuff and even coming to church this morning or watching. It's good, but it doesn't save you. Only Jesus can. And if this morning you are feeling a little dry, a little distant from God, you're like, I'm going to church and I'm doing small groups and I'm giving and I'm doing all this good stuff and I'm not reaping the benefits, maybe you got things reversed. <laughs> maybe you're trying to do those things to impress God so you get some good things. And it's time to see it in new covenant life, in grace. It's a better way. It's a new way. Would you stand with me and pray? God, may we follow your good instructions because you're good, because your plans are good, the things you have for us, the blessings. May we live in a way that is uh, best for us because you want to be in relationship. You want good things. You, you, you say that you want us to have an abundant life. And as we live in this now and not yet kingdom, as we look forward to Jesus returning and, and the fulfillment of all your promises, may we live in the reality that you're working in us in a way that old covenant couldn't. Thank you for grace that looks our sin in the eye, doesn't sweep it under the carpet, but takes it to the cross with you that we might be free and live in a new way. And as we march towards Easter and as we're in this season of repentance, would you convict us of sin in the way only you can, the way that uh, a condemning law cannot, but a convicting, loving Savior can in spirit? Would you free us from those besetting and treasured sins that we've held on for so long, that just rob us of life, rob us of your good things. And may we live in a way that glorifies you in intimate fellowship with you, day by day, moment by moment, so that as we live, all people might know that you are true and just and fair and right, and even through our lives, they might believe in you. I pray for the one who's not following you today or who's wandered from you. I pray that the message of grace rather than condemnation. Your kindness would bring us to repentance and goodness and walking in close relationship faithfully with you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.